Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. And I'm Laura Coates. And this is CNN Tonight. And we're going to keep the conversation going every night from 10 to midnight. And we've got a lot of smart folks here to do just that with us tonight. And, you know, you as viewers actually can be a part of the program as well. You can join us. Give us your tweets, your comments, and actually have them right on air at times as well. You can even ask us direct questions, which I shudder to think what those would be. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) What could possibly be the issue with that? We're going to try it tonight. So we'll be here with our panelists from across the political spectrum through the midterm elections. And there's a lot to get to on that front tonight. So let's start with hypocrisy or abortion or hypocrisy and abortion since they seem to be going hand in hand. So-called pro-life Republicans seem to have forgotten their vehement anti-abortion pro-family stance when it comes to their candidate for Georgia Senate, Herschel Walker. As you know, Walker allegedly paid for his ex-girlfriend to have an abortion. She's provided various pieces of evidence to the press. This despite the fact that Walker claimed not to know the woman. More importantly, Walker wants to ban abortion for everyone else if he makes it to the Senate, with no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. But, you know, that's not even the whole story because that woman has actually told New York Times that Herschel Walker actually asked her to have a second abortion. Now, she refused, and she gave birth to what is now a 10-year-old son. And if you think Herschel Walker's fellow Republicans couldn't possibly, I mean, couldn't possibly back him after all of that, well, you'd be mistaken. But, Congressman, let me ask you, let me ask you this, though, Congressman, by supporting Herschel Walker, given these allegations, is the GOP, are you sending a message that Republicans are willing to win at all costs? Well, I think people make mistakes. And if people acknowledge them and ask for forgiveness, uh, none of us are perfect. That's fascinating. They make mistakes. He's not the only one. There are all sorts of Republicans, as you alluded to, who say he makes mistakes. He's asked for forgiveness. What's the problem? It was 2009. I mean, it's so different than what they were saying, you know, when you hear them talk about a national abortion ban, yeah. say. Well, I mean, it's not just the idea, and just to be clear, not the substance that they're talking about either. Whether it happened or not, it's the idea of the lie. Is that the mistake that was made that they're talking about? And everyone does that. Is that the problem? Well, let's talk about it with our panelists tonight because we've got Democratic strategist Paul Begala, George Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and former Republican Congresswoman Mia Love. Glad that they're all here to talk about this. What's your thought? I'm looking at Georgia <laughs> over here. I got to know, how is this playing in Georgia? Well, it's certainly a tough time to be a Republican in Georgia. This should be a layup for us. Mm. Um, we should have two Republican U.S. senators, but unfortunately we lost in the runoff. Uh, and now we're faced with a situation where certainly it feels like Herschel Walker is way behind and falling even further behind. I think we've got to get to a point where we, we stop translating honesty for weakness. And uh, I think once, once uh, we, we figure out that we can be honest and still be strong, I think we'll be better as a party. Yeah, I'm so confused about where Republicans are with abortion right now. Is it that it's okay if you like the candidate? It's only, you're only against abortion if it's a Democrat who gets the abortion? 
I'm so confused by all the people who are lining up to support Herschel Walker. It's just politics, again, at its worst. So let let me give you, here's my perspective. My perspective of it is this. I mean, when I was growing, when I was in high school, I wasn't as pro-life as I am today. It took me uh, my into my adulthood to realize how incredibly um, precious life is. And it's a miracle. If he, if Herschel would stand up and say, you know, I did, it's it's not taking accountability. It's what really is bugging me. So, it's also so, the loss of, of life that is bugging me. But if he said, I, um, okay, yes, I did this. I paid for an abortion. Then you would support him? I haven't. I, I actually haven't put my, I haven't supported him before this or no, but after would you? this. I'm saying that that's what you're saying, that if he were honest about this, you would then support him or not support him as somebody would, who's I, very pro-life? You're I would consider, consider it. I might, I might consider it. But here's what's really interesting. Let's call it, let's call it both ways. Democrats don't believe he's actually done anything wrong here when it comes to paying for That's his true. girlfriend they to have... That, that everybody hey, should have a choice me, that well, he Let me finish. Let me finish. They're using this... They're using this... I want to your, your statement, but one thing. Before we get into the whataboutism, I just want to be clear on one thing. You're, you're, are you suggesting, and I want to hear from everyone here on the panel as well, especially you, Paul, on this issue, because... Are you saying that it's the Democrats don't think the issue really is whether he paid for an abortion or not? It's that they're just trying to use it against him. But if that's true, why is the lie not enough? You just said the honesty is not a weakness. What do you think about that? Well, I think we we don't expect members of Congress or leaders to be perfect. We do expect them to be honest. We do expect. And that's what I'm talking about. I don't I don't I haven't heard him say anything about this. He's got a son that is saying, you've been an absentee father. Stand up and say... Oh, he and has three kids I, I just, that he's just recently acknowledged. But, but Mia, just, just one last thing on this. You're saying that even though you're very pro-life... Yes. You would consider supporting him, even knowing what you know about his background. If he has said... If he... If, I, I'm leaving room for some explanation. I'm leaving room for somebody to stand up and say, this is what happened. This is what I did. And I take accountability for it. I'm going to stand up. Is a part of this a a calendar or is it accountability? Because a part of me says, look, you're five weeks out from the midterm elections. I wonder if Herschel Walker for Republicans would be the, the serious candidate that they want him to be in Georgia if we were, say, five months out and there were other contenders. Is a part of this and the idea of the accountability is like, look, if Republicans don't support Herschel Walker at this point, are you giving the race at that point in time then to Raphael Warnock, the senator right now? Is that their issue? Well, I think they're going to lose the race and they're going to lose something more important, their integrity. Uh, a political party has to draw the line somewhere, okay? My Democrats booted Al Franken out of the Senate for almost nothing compared to what Herschel Walker's accused of. They helped kick uh, Andrew Cuomo out of the governor's office for more serious than what Franken was accused of, but much less than Herschel. So, but we know well, wait, there I'm is sorry, a- Paul, they're accusing, and you're talking about my home state of Minnesota, this, I hate to jump in, but- they're talking about, you said, what is, what is the, the equivalent you're drawing? Al Franken accused of being accused inappropriate of, behavior, and then the idea of paying for an abortion, you're equating those two? Well, I, I, he's alleged to have held a gun to his ex-wife's head. His That's ex-wife says okay. that. And he's accused of fathering children outside of wedlock that he has not been a father for. And he's accused by his own son of making them move six times in six months while, because he was threatening their safety. And he's accused of paying for an abortion 
for a woman, not his wife, who he impregnated. That's pretty serious stuff for Republicans, for anybody, but for Republicans. But there, this is the thing that bothers me. There is a red line for Republicans. What is it? Criticizing Donald Trump. Mm. Ask Jeff Duncan. Ask Mia Love. Ask Liz Cheney. Ask Adam Kinzinger. Yeah. Ask Jeff Flake. Uh, ask uh, ask uh, Bob Corker. These are all really talented Republicans. I don't agree with y'all on almost any issues, but they're people of integrity. But they cross the red line for the Republicans. Thou shalt not criticize the dear leader. And that's 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 how the, a party loses its soul. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, and that, that goes back to the opening comment about honesty is not weakness. Right. If you're a Republican and you're honest that Donald Trump does not deserve to be the president of the United States anymore, if you're honest and say that January 6th was a horrible day and there's no explanation for it, if you're a Democrat and you say that Joe Biden is not fit for office, if you're a Democrat and say that this tuition waiver uh, is a good idea, you've got to be honest. And that's there's not enough honest people around the, around the system right now. I'm okay and, with honesty. And, and to me, my kids can, and now I can you're look no my kids in Congress, though. Me. <laughs> that's, that's, I, mean, I wonder, exactly, I've always been okay. I've always been okay with honesty. And I, at, at quite a large cost to mm-hmm. the race, I would, I went after the former president because I felt like I needed to be an example to my children. Mm. But, Lieutenant Governor, are you surprised by when you hear Congressman Don Bacon, when you hear Senator, um, you know, Rick Scott and Tom Cotton come out and say that they still support Herschel Walker? No, because, I, you know, I got broken in by listening to folks talk about Donald Trump in public settings and then in private settings would put their arm around you and say, hey, thanks for doing the right thing. I'll get there eventually. I hope my district warms up to this idea of being honest. But look, we're in a healing process. And unfortunately, Herschel Walker and other races like this in the Republican Party, this is part of this horrible process of us taking our medicine. Right. We're going to have a gravitational pullback to real leaders that grasp honesty. But, you know, Herschel Walker's losing, yes, because of all this baggage that he's having to explain, but he's also losing because he's not talking about all the things that do matter to Georgians. Brian Kemp's got a seven to 10 point lead on Stacey Abrams because he's actually talking about real problems that real people are scared about. Inflation, uh, you know, all of the issues in Europe, uh, fuel costs, mortgage rates, you name it, he's talking about it. Herschel Walker's not. Okay, everybody stick around if you would. Uh, We have a lot more to talk about, and we want to hear from you also, as we were talking about earlier, on everything from Herschel Walker to Kanye West's anti-Semitic comments. And anything else you want to say to Laura and me, within reason, you can tweet us. (laughs) I'm already putting the brakes on this. Can you underscore that? Within reason, Within reason. And you can ask us questions within reason. Tweet us at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. And when we come back, Kevin McCarthy caught on tape telling two police officers who risked their lives defending the Capitol where he works on January 6th and the mother of a third who died after the riot that the then president had no idea what his supporters were doing while they were beating police and hunting lawmakers in the halls. And just wait till you hear who got him on tape saying that. A new January 6th committee hearing happens this week, just as we hear secretly recorded audio from a private meeting in June 2021 between House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and two police officers who risked their lives defending the Capitol on January 6th, Mm -hmm. along with the mother of a third police officer who died after the riot. So McCarthy insists to them that then-President Trump had no idea his own supporters were carrying out the attack. This audio was recorded by Michael Fanone, one of the police officers grievously injured trying to defend the Capitol. When I called him, he wasn't watching TV, he wasn't with his family. He knew what was going on. 
He knew what was going on. He knew they were fighting for hours and hours and hours. You know, I just, you know, right. it just doesn't make any sense. I'm just telling you from my phone call, I don't know that he did know that. Hmm. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig joins us now. And Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is back with us along with former Republican Congresswoman Mia Love. Um, Congresswoman, I know you had an exchange with Kevin McCarthy today, I believe. And so what did he say? He said it's true that when he called the president, the president didn't know. And I remember actually Jimmy Herrera Butler former our congresswoman, Jamie Herrera Butler, saying she overheard the conversation and it got pretty heated where McCarthy said, who the F do you think you are? So it's not, I believe that the president was watching TV because that's what he did. He would watch TV and he would watch all of these things. Is it, it's not hard for me to think that the president actually didn't tell McCarthy the truth. Probably said, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But the point is, though, but are you saying that McCarthy believed what Trump had to say and then relayed that to Brian Sicknick's mother that the president was not watching television? I mean, was there anyone in the world who was not watching what was going on to Jen and Darian? I mean, that, did he say that today that he thought that was accurate? He didn't think he was explaining to the president what was going on. He was saying, hey, they're breaking in. But I but remember First of all, Kevin has no reason to lie to me. He's a good friend of mine. He has no reason to lie to me. But remember, he's part of the branch of government that was being attacked. January 6th was an attack from one branch of government to another. And he was part of that. Okay. Yeah. Did he know you were coming on CNN tonight? Is that why he would have said, hey, I mean, I'm not trying to be funny about it. I mean, think about the idea. There's no reason that Kevin McCarthy would have to lie and about knowing that the, the president other thing. was He did not know TV that he was not? being recorded. And he said the same thing behind closed doors, as he did in the Well, open. I mean, as we know, President Trump often has his own narrative, and he says whatever he wants to at that moment. But there, as you know, um, Lieutenant Governor, there have been, I think, probably five people who have testified to the January 6th committee that he was watching television that day. Yeah, make no mistake about it. Donald Trump was watching television. He had his feet kicked up on his desk, and he probably was enjoying for a period of time what he was seeing. In fact, those are the reports. Until his inner circle got to him and finally convinced him that he needed to go out in the Rose Garden and give a 90-second speech that was half-hearted and tried to kind of sort of convince America to calm down. Kevin McCarthy also, he did the math. For about seven days, he got it right. And then he did the math and said, I'm going to fall in line with the, with, the, with the president so I can become the next Speaker of the House instead of being honest with America. Or, or with the mother of Brian Sickness. I mean, she was giving pushback, right, Ellie, in yeah. that moment to say, basically, I, I call BS here. He was watching it. He was watching it. Can these words come back to haunt him? If you, if you heard this, what goes through your mind? I know the prosecutor in you is... <laughs> Kevin McCarthy is being as crafty as ever in that conversation that we just heard with the relative Brian Sicknick. He says, well, at the moment I called Donald Trump, he wasn't watching TV. First of all, how would you know that? You can't see, right? I don't think this was a FaceTime. Uh, second of all, let's remember why Kevin McCarthy called Donald Trump. He said, we're under siege here at the Capitol. You need to call off your people. Yes. And whenever you're talking about Kevin McCarthy, you have to say, which Kevin McCarthy are we talking about? As the lieutenant governor said, Kevin McCarthy 1.0 was honest. 
He had that conversation with Trump. He said, call your people off. He said, Trump's responsible. He said, Trump told me he was responsible. Unfortunately, that iteration of Kevin McCarthy lasted about a week or so. He then goes down to Mar-a-Lago a couple weeks later, kisses the ring, and he comes out of it, Kevin McCarthy, aspiring future Speaker of the House. He has no credibility in my view. All due respect to whatever he may have texted you today, he's in cover-up mode. He's in it's image reparation mode. It's just not hard for me to believe that the president was lying to him. There was one point, again, that was p- part of the conversation that was overheard where they thought he said, well, maybe maybe you should be a little bit more upset, too. Wait, who said that? Well, Trump or, said that to McCarthy. Or, or well, Trump I, I said, think, maybe maybe you yeah. should be a little bit more upset, too. But I think and he's we like, all believe think that... Right. I, think, I think we're saying something similar in that no one believed that Donald Trump was not watching television. The point, I think, of that particular revelation mm. was that even in spite of knowing that, he relayed to somebody in defense mode of the president of the United States that, no, 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 he wasn't doing that. And because to a would, grieving mother. And I mean, to, and to a, a grieving mother who wasn't buying it anyway. Yeah. And so when you look at this and think about all the people who have been in that same mode of, I know the truth, you mentioned the last segment, I know the truth in private, I'm gonna tell you that, and in public, I have a different viewpoint. I mean, just how systemic is this to this day in the Republican Party, as you've seen in places like Georgia and otherwhere? Well, one, this is a politics problem. Both parties, politics, yeah. you know, th- these are leaders of, of congressional caucuses that if he was listening to the president but didn't believe him, he should have relayed that to a grieving family. He should have been honest and authentic with them instead of trying to spread something out out there to to help Donald Trump continue his political career. I just, I I genuinely don't think anybody in America actually thinks Donald Trump didn't know what was going on. Let me just, if I can. It's disingenuous. It's a politics problem, but it's also a legal problem and a prosecution problem because if Kevin McCarthy were to tell it straight, he's a crucial witness. He's the only person to this date who has ever said, Donald Trump said to me, he acknowledged that he, Donald Trump, had some responsibility. Laura, you know that you would circle that person and say, that's witness one. But guess what Kevin McCarthy has done since then? He got subpoenaed by Congress. What did he do? Completely ignored it. Never got held in contempt. And he's completely changed his story. He's poisoned himself as a witness. He's undermining the effort to prosecute Donald Trump. And last, uh, Lieutenant Governor, how much do you think that this upcoming hearing... And they have all had some level of bombshells. This upcoming January 6th hearing on Thursday, how much do you think that it will play into the midterms? Well, I, I think it will. I mean, the January 6th hearings up to this point have, have outpunted uh, what, I, what my expectations were. I mean, it's been very fact-finding, uh, very on point. And shocking. And, and shocking to see some of this stuff, just the raw. I mean, we felt it in Georgia. I mean, just the phone calls, the granular level of sitting at a small room of legislators, state-level legislators, and seeing a then people get up and talk to a, a sitting president just to try to coerce me into having a special session or some other action. I mean, this, this is a granular level that was getting played, and it, it's painful to think that our government got to that point. Well, we'll see, because Thursday, you're right, is the time we're going to have yet another hearing. But it's also been a couple months since we heard the last one. The question will be whether there is a sustained interest at this point, this coming Thursday, fights for the elections. El, um, Ellie, thank you so much. Everybody else, stick around. Next... I'm speaking with the one and only Jada Pinkett Smith. We're talking about her interview with Breonna Taylor's family. I can't wait for this conversation next.
Our next guest tonight wants to shine a light on a tragedy that really reminds us all to say her name. Breonna Taylor was killed within months of both George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, yet the only person to serve time for her killing was her boyfriend, Kenny, who fired officers as they broke into their home while the two lay in bed, believing that they were intruders, not officers. Learning more about details about an alleged cover-up by the officers that were involved in this, well, shall we say, problematic search warrant, which is at the very core and heart of this case. And in a new episode for Red Table Talk, Jada Pinkett-Smith, her daughter Willow, and Mother Adrian sat down with Brianna's family to allow them, in a world of narratives, to tell their own story. When did you find out that Brianna had passed? It wasn't until about 11.30 a.m., Oh, my God. And mind you, we had been out there since 1 a.m. The detective comes back over and says, it won't be much longer that we'll be able to get in there. And so by this time, I'm pissed. Like, I'm screaming at him. Like, why won't you tell me where Brianna is? I need to know where Brianna is. And he just looks at me and says, well, ma'am, she's still in the apartment. And so I, I knew what that meant. knew what it meant. He never said it, but I knew. So they never took her to the hospital? They never Mm -hmm. even attempted to help her. Can you imagine this? Jada Pinkett-Smith joins me now. Jada, it's good to see you, but there's been a lot going on. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing good. It's good to see you. It was good to see you for this episode of Red Table Talk as well. And, you know, this has been something I've been talking a lot about on air, what happened to her. And this has been very near and dear to your heart. And you have been holding that magnifying glass on top of this story. Why is this so important to you for this story to be told and shared? Well, you know, I believe that... um, you know, Brianna represents um, so many uh, women um, who have died by the hands of police or have been abused in, at, you know, in some way. And I feel like uh, Brianna is probably it is the first case to get the uh, spotlight that that is that it has gotten. And, you know, I also believe, you know, we really want at some point to have justice for her murder, you know? And so this is a story that I think is, you know, deeply important to keep talking about. You know, we often talk about say her name and what that means. And you mentioned the idea of it being something so important to women more broadly, but you're sitting at a table, three generations, on a topic that frankly is multi-generational, sadly. I I wonder for all of you, do, do you see this differently? Your daughter, your mother, yourself, you're having these conversations the way that many families across the country are having. I wonder when you think about what message and the legacy of Breonna Taylor, what do you think lies ahead here? I mean, what I'm hoping lies ahead is more awareness. And with that awareness change, Um, that's what I'm hoping for, which is why, you know, we believe as a family it's important to, uh, you know, keep telling this story. And it's it's really honestly, I, I, I was really shocked at, you know, I thought that I, I really knew what had happened that night. But to hear 
um, Kenny's testimony and to have him there with Tamika and her sister and to hear them all talk about what actually happened. It was so deeply devastating. And it just gave me um, more insight and more information around what actually happened that night, you know, to actually hear the story um, from these three points of views, mm. uh, you know, hold in such a, a concise way. It, it was just, it was heartbreaking. It's so powerful the way you described it, Jada, because when you think about so many people have heard about this story, right? We've heard about it in the news. There's cases like it. Right. You think you know, and then you realize, but for conversations like the ones that need to be had with the people who it most impacts most directly, although this broadly impacts all of us, the idea of sitting as you were, as a mother, yeah. as a woman, as yeah. somebody who's sitting next to your own daughter, watching yeah. a mother describe what that was like, watching the boyfriend describe that he had gone to jail in that moment, that was really compelling. It must have been very difficult in many respects to feel like you were learning it in that moment. It was. It was really difficult. And I think, you know, as a mother and, and, and sitting there with my daughter, Willow, and just, you know, imagining a circumstance like that with, with my child. It was, you know, and, you know, none of us are exempt, <laughs> honestly, you know, and, you know, it was really, it was very difficult. It, it, it was probably one of the hardest um, red tables that uh, we've done. You know, you think about how so often we talk about the conversation that we have with our children and not necessarily right. the conversation about, what has happened? We give the warning conversations at times. We have the kitchen table sort of discussions everyone's talking about all across the spectrum, all across the nation, what really matters and what's going to be most impactful to you and your community. And then there's the the lesson that is that comes to those intimate conversations. And it's so important, as you articulated, to not just have the media narrative on what is reported but you really go to the right. source. And that's one of the things I think you're trying to accomplish in the setting that you are to have those moments, to have those lean ins that not everyone gets to have over the course of just trying to keep pace with the news. Absolutely. I, you know, and I think that, you know, specifically for Tamika, I wanted to, Brianna's mother, I wanted to give her an opportunity to really have a, um, enough time you know, I mean, the, the show is is almost like 45 minutes. Uh, I wanted to give her enough time so that she could actually have the story told, you know, for Kenny as well and and for uh, Brianna's sister. And because, you know, you get to tell your story in, you know, five, 10 minutes at the most, you know, and for a story like this, you, you really need more time. Um, so that there were so many details that got explained um, that she just wouldn't have had the opportunity uh, and any producer wouldn't have had the opportunity to to have all those details illuminated. Um, and so I, we really were grateful to be able to, uh, you know, have a platform for her where she could do that. You know, and you use the platform to do that, the idea of giving that space and giving that opportunity, because you don't have to be doing this. You, it's something that's very close and personal to you. And I wonder if you can just reflect on 
what, what is, what motivates you to use that platform in that way? You know, the, the one thing that, you know, I've always told my kids, I'm like, use your voice and use your platforms to help the voices of those that aren't heard, you know, and, um, you know, people like to pay a lot of attention to celebrities and what's happening to us. But honestly, in the scope of what's going on in the world, usually what's going on with us is not that important. Right. And so, I mean, of course, our art and what have you, but, you know, being able to um, use, you know, the attention and the spotlights that are put on us to actually flow power to others to just give them an opportunity for their stories that, you know, there's a lot going on in the world today. Um, a lot of people that need help and um, a lot of people that need to be heard. So that that's one of the pleasures that we get out of having the Red Table. And of course, as a family, um, it's given us an opportunity to be heard and have control of, of our narrative as well. Important. You, people want to hear from you, Jada Pinkett Smith, and you used it to let someone else's story be told. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much for being part of the show. You brought uh, so much education. I learned so much <laughs> from you. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, hopefully next time we can have like about something fun as opposed to what's necessary, which can be the same thing sometimes. Jada Pinkett Smith, everyone, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. You know, really it's important. interesting yeah. to hear from her there. And also, I mean, I just want to second what she said and what I think you were saying. Just when you think you've heard the most gut-wrenching, yep. the most gut-wrenching qualities of this horrible story. No, there's more. There's more to hear from yeah. her mother and to hear how she had to stay out for hours and not know where her daughter was, which well, I didn't yeah. know that detail. I mean, why don't we get caught up in the news, which is why I think it's so important to share a story like this, because, you know, we talk about the facts and it can sometimes come off as sterile and very dragnet, just the facts. When you realize that there are human beings behind a hashtag, behind the stories, behind the conversations around reform and other areas, to hear it, it's a reminder. And she said, no one's exempt. And that's why I think we have to keep on these stories. Yeah, but I also think it was really interesting that Breonna Taylor's family chose to go on Red Table Talk. I yeah. mean, that's not CNN. Yep. That's different. But obviously, they felt that that was a place where they could get her story out, which I think is really interesting. And obviously, of course, Jada Pinkett-Smith has had her own tumultuous year. And I guess she has said that she'll talk about that when she's ready. Well, she said she'll use her voice for when she thinks it's necessary. And here it was Breonna Taylor. And I'm glad to see it. OK, so listen to this. Next, crime is obviously a big issue in the midterms. And each party is fighting over which one is tougher on crime. But one Republican senator took his attack line way over the line. They think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit! They are not owed that. You know, we're back now. We've got our panel with us still, Paul Begala, Mia Love, and Jeff Duncan. And of course, Allison and I are here. And, you know, thinking about what we've been hearing, I mean, it's hard to think about things in a vacuum, right? We're five weeks away from a midterm election. We talk about issues related to even law enforcement. A whole host of things comes up, whether it's the FBI and Mar-a-Lago or conversations around mistrust or progressive prosecutors, what ha soft on crime. It's all there. I wonder what your reactions are. Crime's an issue. And, and in my party, 
you know, there's sort of three approaches. One, the far left says defund the police. It's a disaster politically, I think, substantively. Uh, we want to reform the police, but defund the police is a catastrophe. Two, a lot of them are just hiding, just cut and run. I don't want to talk about crime. I'm going to talk about abortion rights. I'm going to Democrats talk about health care. Democrats in my party. There's a third approach, which is deal with it. Address it. I think Democrats are better on crime. Catherine Cortez Masto, a former prosecutor, is running for her life in, in her Senate race in Nevada. Mm-hmm. She's running ads with endorsements from cops, including the Republican sheriff of Washoe County, which is Reno. Um, you know, Joe Biden has actually been uh, quite good on this. Val Demings, the former police chief, is running for Senate in, in Florida. She's not afraid of being strong on crime. I, I think the formula for Democrats is pretty simple. More cops, fewer guns. Now, the cops got to be in community policing. They got to be disciplined. They got to be trained. But that's, you know, the far left doesn't want to hear more cops. The far right doesn't want to hear fewer guns. Mm. Suggests to me about 80 percent of the country is open to that message, but too few Democrats have the guts to run on it. Do you think the issue in part is, you know, when the Dobbs decision came out, right, I mean, that was political landmines everywhere. Do you think that Democrats thought that would be enough to have a sustaining, galvanizing front for people to go out to the polls and they'd be able to, in a way, not not coast on crime, I don't mean that because no one can coast on crime, but be able to bank on voters being so reactive to that that they could not have the priority of crime. What do you guys think? I don't think you can win an election on just one issue. Um, I think, obviously, um, there's, there's multiple issues that, that different, different states have to face, but let's take the crime. I think there's two buckets that, elect, that elected officials sit in. There's those that want to just pontificate and politicize crime, and there's those that actually want to do something about it, right? Paul, I, I believe you're spot on when you say defund the police was probably the worst thing the Democrats came up with in decades, and they're going to take decades to unwind it. But Republicans, what if I told you there was a state that created a $60 million tax credit that bipartisanly, unanimously approved in their legislature to allow law enforcement officers to get paid more, hired better, or hired more, and and buy more equipment? You're not going to say Georgia, are you? Georgia did it in 2022. In the midst of all the chaos going on in Georgia, we bipartisanly, unanimously passed a bill because we wanted to work together. And I have a question about that. Do you think that, that, that crime is one of the top priorities for Georgia voters right now? That will drive them to the polls in five weeks? I watched Atlanta single-handedly fall apart in a matter of nights. When we made this, when, when, when the Democratic administration in the city of Atlanta made this notion that defunding the police was, was going to be the operating standard, over 500 police officers melted away to the suburbs almost immediately. They weren't being supported. It's going to take a decade plus to bring those officers back and to take that crime back off the streets. But you know, if you think about it, you're, you're saying Democrats. I know we all paint things in broad strokes, but the Democrat, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, is not in support of defund the police. Right. He's been very adamant about that. My own home state of Minnesota, um, you know, it was a city council talking about the issue, but it wasn't as broadly felt among every voter. As you know, the emissions failed. So I wonder, is that part of a talking point in the sense of this is what Democrats want to do as a slogan as opposed to addressing crime? Because both can't necessarily be true. Crime's local. To deal with crime, you've got to deal with it on the local level. I don't think you can make any sort of sort of federal. You can talk about it and pontificate is, about it. It's being politicized instead of actually being fixed. I'm listening to Paul with all of these different ideas of how we actually fix the problem and save lives. When I was a mayor, we decided that police officers, we were going to start a police department and we needed our police officers to live in the community, to actually go to church, go to the parks, go to the same grocery store. Yet when, a, when somebody, like a police officer, has power over people, has a weapon, they have to, when they're policing somebody, they need to 
to picture that person. It's a person. That's, it could be their own mother. It could be their own sure. brother, the best their own child. Sure. But you, I, I want young black men to have the opportunity to be police officers in their own communities so they can look at somebody that lives in their community and says, you know, I want to help you. Tommy, you need to go home. I'm going to take you. I know your mama. Well, here's but one thing, Mia, I don't want to cut you off, but this is one of the issues I have with the, the Tuberville clip we played in part, right? Which is the idea of the conflation of crime with black people and the reparations aspect of it. And I, I think too often part of the part of an argument that is failing collectively our country is this notion that when we're talking about being tough on crime, we automatically and this is not entirely what you were doing, I'm not saying that. We're being tough on crime, the conversation is about making sure black people see themselves in officers in the community. Right. When a whole host of crimes are not committed by people of color broadly, just look at this personality of it. So why is the message always going back for Democratic strategists to the notion of crime and the intersection of race exclusively? Why isn't it more broad? It, well, it needs to be more broad. The majority of criminals in this country are white. Tell Do you ever Tommy hear Tuberville. that? Do you ever Tell hear that? Tommy Tuberville. By the way, I mean, Tommy Tuberville helps run a state, Alabama, that has the fourth highest murder rate of all 50 states. He needs to shut the hell up with his racist stuff and go home and fight crime for real. Honestly, I'm even reluctant to play what he said because it's oh. so odious. And I listened to it uh, yeah. over and over again, and I kept saying, who is they? Who is he talking about? <laughs> I, just, I was just... confused. I listened to it three or four times yes. today. I was just confused as to what point he was trying to make. And I think an interesting... No, somebody to walk up to you and rob you and ask you if you're a Democrat or Republican <laughs> right. or care about your race. If they do, it's a hate crime. And in Georgia, you get there's, an, there's yeah. a, an even stiffer penalty for it. People are crime is crime, and we need to work together in a bipartisan manner crime to solve is an issue. solve the it issue. Is an issue and- but Democrats have to have the courage to lean into it and not listen to Republican talking points. They all say, "Oh, the cities are." Ter-. Guess what? Kevin McCarthy's from Bakersfield, California. Its murder rate is twice the murder rate of San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi's hometown. And who should be saying that? I should. Nancy Pelosi should. Every Democrat should. By the way, Lexington, Kentucky, in Mitch McConnell's home state, twice the murder rate of New York City, where we're sitting right now, per capita. Why are Democrats leaning into it? They shouldn't be afraid. Is is there a reason? I mean, answer the question. Is there a reason? I mean, I know it's rhetorical, but why isn't that brought up? Is it because it's not a winning? Does it feel like a tit-for-tat failed whataboutism? Is that why it's not being said? Because I think people don't, they don't know those statistics. They don't know that data point. I I think that that too too many Democrats are too elitist and not in touch with people on the streets, who Bill Clinton used to call walking around folks, okay, in Minneapolis. The African-American wards rejected defunding the police way more than the white wards did. Why don't elites know that? Because a bunch of white elites, it's kind of, you know, I'm sorry, I love my party, but there's too many people in, in the faculty lounge, too few people on the factory floor, right? I think my elites got to get back in touch with those walking around folks. By the way, I will give him credit for this. Joe Biden has always been one of those guys. He has great credibility uh, in the communities because he's actually walked the walk. Easy for a man to walk around. I'm in five-inch heels. <laughs> and let's be honest, President <laughs> Biden takes the train. He doesn't actually walk. He takes the Amtrak every day. That's what he does. Back and forth. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, Ooh. we're, I mean, yeah, just, quickly. just yesterday, I mean, Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor in New York, uh, j- actually had a scare at his own home. And he says the crime has actually hit our front porch. He, and his 
two kids ran upstairs, locked themselves in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, it's scary, but when you look at the stats, the the issue is that uh, burglary is up, but violent crime in a place like New York is down, but you don't have that feeling. So the people, you know, when you're riding the subway and everything, there's a feeling that crime is up, and it does take people to spell it out the way you did, Paul, which you're always good at. Thank you so much for (laughs) all of that. Stop politicizing it and do something. Just look at facts. Look at data. Okay, friends, thank you very much. We have a lot more to talk about tonight. We want to know what you think also on everything from crime to Herschel Walker to Kanye's Twitter account being locked over an anti-Semitic tweet. We haven't even gotten to that story yet. And anything else that's on your mind tonight, you can tweet us at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. All right. Also next, it's World Mental Health Day, and we'll talk to you about what you can do. It's like your mental health toolkit, and it's easy stuff to do. We'll talk about that when we come back. Tonight, we're marking World Mental Health Day, aimed at raising awareness of mental health issues and providing people with information to find the help that they may need. So mental health, of course, is on everyone's mind after Mm -hmm. the very challenging two years that we've just had. I mean, it's absolutely true. A recent CNN and Kaiser Family Foundation survey found, Allison, one in five Americans have experienced a mental health challenge recently. Mm-hmm. And also surprised. 90% of people surveyed and said the country is in a mental health crisis. Yes, I was surprised at how high that 90%. number is. 90%. I yeah. mean, what can you do to take care of yourself or maybe to help a loved one? There are some simple mental health tips that we'll share with you. So exercise, get enough sleep. Everybody feels better after they have enough sleep. Have a healthy diet. Practice gratitude. This is a really good one. I do think that a gratitude journal does really help your mental health. It sounds corny, but it really does. And then check in with your friends. um, Make sure they're okay and practice random acts of kindness. That's from the National Institute of Mental Health. It's so important to think about that. But also, we don't want anyone to think that we are downplaying or think that all things can be solved with a couple of tips. Everyone needs to know what's best for them and reach out for the help that you need. It's not enough just to simply give the number we're going to give. Make sure we're connected as a society with people as well. And you never know what someone else is going through. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, dial 988 or chat at 988lifeline.org. It's really important. Okay. Meanwhile, it's debate night. Tim Ryan is facing off with J.D. Vance. And things have gotten testy. We're going to explain all of that right after this. The testy part. (laughs) Yes. All right, so I'm guessing I don't have to really remind anyone that there's a thing called midterm elections. Mm-hmm. They're about a month when is away. That? Month away, got it. It's about a month away. It's elections, democracy here. And the gloves are officially off. Well, if they were ever actually on. So tonight there was this fiery debate in Ohio between Republican J.D. Vance and Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan. And we have some of the particularly spicy moments from that to play for you. And we've also got some interesting moments we're going to talk about in just a second with the smart people. Let's play some of those, though. Um, okay, well, first, should we bring in our smart people? I mean, no, smart I want the spice. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, let's bring them in. Okay, so my estranged work husband, John Berman. <laughs> 
Hey, am I in the wrong seat? Do you want yes, to switch? I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm sorry. Kidding. I'm so happy. Le- to lean over for the love. You stayed up late for us tonight, and you're doing New Day tomorrow morning. Yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna plow through. We're just gonna just stay oh. up the whole time. I'm so honored. Brought John Berman is actually Ryan. <laughs> Amanda wakes up by Allison Camerata. God, he's good. He's so good. We're also joined by Allison. We're happy to have you here as well. And Keith Boykin, great to have you guys. Let me just say, I have Laura's book on my bookcase. I wasn't. I wasn't gonna say anything. I didn't bring it here, but it's on my bookcase at home. Yeah, I appreciate you. That was nice. All right, do you guys want to hear what's going on in Ohio tonight? No. There's a debate. There's a debate. (laughs) Okay, so I'll play you some of the sound of what uh, these two gentlemen have just said to each other. I think the problem is when you have guys like J.D. Vance who can't stand up to anybody. Like just a few weeks ago in in Youngstown, on the stage, uh, Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. That's bad, because that means J.D. Vance is going to do whatever he wants. I have been a pain in the rear end to Nancy Pelosi. And if Chuck Schumer is the leader, I will be a pain in the rear end to him, too. I'm for Ohio. I don't kiss anyone's ass like him. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. Okay, thank you, candidates. Another reverse line. So, John, ass kissing is bad? Is that what I'm supposed to get from Ass kicking is good, according to Tim Ryan. Look, what he's trying to lean into is authenticity. Tim Ryan, what he has done from the beginning of this campaign is try to say, I am genuine Ohio. And J.D. Vance, he says, went to Silicon Valley here. And what he was doing right there is trying to lay that out, create that distinction. And he did, yes, have a well-rehearsed line. But all that means is he was prepared for the debate, which is probably a good idea. Well, and you always walk into a debate with your takeaway line. Clearly, that was his line. But the, the, the big message that both of them are trying to paint the other as was the elitist. You know, Ryan was trying to paint J.D. Vance as elite, and, and Vance was trying to paint But he was also elitist. trying to paint J.D. Vance as a, uh, just a Trump toady. Trump, a right. And a flip-flopper, yeah. right? right? Yeah, but the, the reality is they're, they're both going to paint each other in their own light, but the big issue that I think a lot of people were watching for tonight was crime, how they were going to address crime. And that was the big issue where they were really getting to the nuts and bolts of an issue that people in Ohio were really concerned with. And that's where we saw the rubber meet the road and their different att- approaches to how to fight, fight crime. Speaking of crime, I mean, some would, some would call it a crime, Keith, when play a second, the idea of denying that we have fair and free elections. I mean, the idea that thinking about our democracy is anything other than fair and free. Listen to this. And I want you to respond to this and what they're saying now about election deniers and who sides with who. This is the crowd that J.D. is running around with. The election deniers, the extremists. We, that's not Ohio. That's not Rob Portman. That's not George Voinovich. That's not Sherrod Brown. Right. That's that's the, 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 that's not for us. He's running with an extreme element here that's very, very Dangerous. First of all, Rob Portman endorsed me, of course, and I find it interesting how preoccupied you are with this at a time when people can't afford groceries, people can't afford to walk down the streets safely. Let's focus on the significant issues right now, Tim. I mean, are they so different? People can't can't afford to walk down the street safely. People can't afford to go in the Capitol and be safe in this country because people are actually attacking them. And J.D. Vance not only encouraged this in some sense, but he actually raised money for the insurrectionists. And I think Tim Ryan made that point today. So the idea that the Republicans are just hammering away on the crime issue, I think the Democrats, I think Paul Begala said this earlier, Democrats have to be more effective in responding to that. How can you say that you're a party that's against crime when Donald Trump is 
is your leader and you're supporting an insurrection Haven't against the against the United States Capitol. Have been saying that? It's, it's really easy for Republicans to address that. It's more than January 6th. It's 365 days a year, not just one day of the year. And and we're looking at many Democratic candidates are soft on crime. They when, have they when, have when they advocate mean? they have advocated for we're talking about a bail reform. We're talking about soft on crime policies. We're talking about defund the police. Well, so Republicans Democratic, are advocating to are, defund the FBI because if, because the, the Republicans love being hard on criminals when the criminals are people who look like me. But when the criminals are people who look like Donald Trump, they don't seem to care about that as much. They're willing to excuse it. When it comes to people who do things like even Herschel Walker, they're willing to excuse that. It, but it, it, it's, it, it's all about who serves the interests of the Republican Party at that moment. It can't be situational politics if you expect people to take it seriously as a party. Well, when you look at the, the polling numbers, issues that are really important to the American people, whether it is Im- whether it's immigration, whether it's inflation, whether it's the economy or whether it's crime... The top issues for voters, they trust Republicans. Well, I think that what, one of the points you're making, Alice, is that it's not democracy. I mean, that, that when, when J.D. Vance says there, how, you're pre, how can you be preoccupied or how preoccupied you are? He said, with demo- basically, he meant with democracy. How can you be thinking about democracy all the time? <laughs> no, look, I also think if you listen to what Tim Ryan did there, he did something very specific. He's trying to position himself as a sort of third political party, Ooh. Ohio the Ohio Party. He's saying there are Democrats. Well, it is the Ohio State, right? They have that. The Ohio State University. That makes sense. Yep. Uh, um, You know, he referenced George Voinovich, Rob Portman, who are two Republicans who did very well in Ohio, but then also Sherrod Brown, a Democrat who's done well in Ohio. And he's trying to put himself as Ohio first. And he needs to do that. Why? Because Donald Trump won Ohio by eight points Mm. in 2020. So he's going into this knowing This is a state that's leaning red, more than leaning red. It's heavily red at this point right now. So he's got to do something different than Democrats. And and we're seeing this every time in Pennsylvania, too, right? The same notion of it used to be just the notion of an outsider. Now it's who's Pennsylvania and not between Fetterman and Oz. Who is that person or not? You laugh, but that, I mean, the whole comment today about the idea of who looks the part, who plays the part, who is relatable to the people of that state or the Commonwealth in this instance. Well, when you own a mansion in New Jersey and a home in Florida and you try to run for office in Pennsylvania, nobody really buys that in terms of your authenticity. In the same way, I don't really, even though Herschel Walker, I hate to go back to him again, even though I know that he went to the University of Georgia and was a huge football star there, he's been living in Texas for the past how many years? And he comes back to Georgia just because Donald Trump wanted him to run for office there. I mean, the big problem here, again, is Donald Trump. Donald Trump recruited uh, J.D. Vance. Donald, Donald Trump recruited Herschel Walker. Walker. Donald Trump recruited Dr. Oz. Donald Trump recruited all these people, Blake Masters and all these people, because he wanted these election deniers of people who supported him instead of what was best for the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, I think Alice may or may not agree with me. I think they're regretting that to a certain extent. It's okay, how you're preoccupied uh, with democracy. Let, let me go wow. on record. It's a thing. I, I agree with Keith Boykin, everything wow. you said. Wow. Oh, wait, wait, no. That's, That's the end of the segment. That's it. We're done. Go to commercial. All right. Because Donald Trump did... Um, self-appoint and and put his name behind and push and fundraise for and and really endorse candidates that were not only election deniers, they were conspiracy theorists, and they were people that were far right of the even the Republican Party, and they had a huge uphill battle. What, what was the Midas Trump of uh, Midas touch of Trump for the primary is an anchor 
for this general election, all of them have had an uphill battle. You're completely correct in terms of distancing themselves from those policies and becoming more moderate for the general election. I'm waiting and, and, for the but. Because no, I think no it's there, there is no but. Because... I've said this for all, for a long time. There are two. They were very far right for the primary. It's an uphill battle, but they have. But they they they, <laughs> they, 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 they have made progress in in moderating to the middle. It's still an uphill battle. Many of these states, they are uh, strategically, they are at a, at a dead heat. But um, Ohio but, shouldn't be a, dub, a, de- it, a dead heat. There. Exactly. Ohio should be an easy win. Ohio is a lot closer than it should be for yeah. the Republicans right now, and part of that is candidates. Yeah. Okay, Let's hear friends, from people. Thank you. Yep. I mean, we want to hear from you all, but also people out there, because we've got a lot more to talk about, and we want to know what you think tonight as well. Everything from crime to what we're talking about today to Republicans rallying around Herschel Walker. We still haven't gotten to Kanye's Twitter account. Oh, How I, is that I, I know. Somehow people are weighing in, but we haven't even talked about it yet. Okay. <laughs> um, so you can oh, find yeah. us on Twitter. All right. So also, straight out of the Twitter verse, we have a viewer already weighing in on the Herschel Walker controversy. This is from Mike Higby. He tweets, the GOP is the party of win at all costs. Unlike Dems, they never hold their candidates to any standards. Al Franken, Katie Hill are two recent examples. Um, I think that kind of echoes what Paul Begala was saying, that Democrats do that better than Republicans. Or do it. Do you agree? <laughs> they hold people the to... Democrats never hold it? No, the Democrats... I, was he just... I, I think I... I rewind. think he was saying they do hold oh, okay. Democrats okay, hold okay. them right. to, like, Al okay. Franken. Okay. John Berman is the Twitter whisperer. Yeah, yeah but the, the GOP yeah, is the party of win at all costs. Okay. Well, that well, it's funny oh, because okay. that's that's been part There's of the conversation. Where, we've got the grammar police here as well. Right, but, exactly. the, but, the, but the idea is... <laughs> Remember, there was this, always this conversation a couple years ago about Democrats and Republicans, the moral high ground, battling to figure out who was afraid to lose the, when it was our chance, we didn't do X, Y, Z. That's, is that still a battle to this day, though, you think, the moral high ground? Or is that gone? Right. <laughs> You're like, no, no Laura, what ground? is it, John? No, I, well, I, it's, it's not in Georgia. I mean, the moral high ground right now isn't in Georgia with Herschel Walker because were it to be the high ground, Rick Scott and Tom Cotton wouldn't be going there tomorrow, or is it today? I've, I've lost track of time. They're there on Tuesday, whether that's tomorrow or today. And Democrats, what's interesting, I think a good question is, would Democrats do it again? Mm. Would they do Al Franken again? Mm. And I don't know the answer to that question, because you talk to a lot of Democrats and they regret Yeah, they have remorse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I, I do think Herschel just happens to be the case du jour of someone who is a flawed candidate, who is in a very tight race, and if he was behind by 10 points, I guarantee you we wouldn't even be talking about this. But the fact this is a dead heat and this is a, a red state in, in Georgia, my home state, the Democrats are going full bore at all costs to make sure that they, they highlight his past instead of what he's planning to do for the future of the people of Georgia. And, and one other point is that they already lost the state to Joe Biden in 2020, and they lost this, the two Senate seats, you know, to Democrats in, in this red state. So they're already feeling badly because they were listening to Donald Trump. If it hadn't been for Donald Trump making himself the center of attention, they might still hold Georgia and the Senate. Right. The, the, well, keep the comments coming, everyone. Tweet us at Allison Camerata or and the Laura Coates. I want to hear from you. Okay, stick around, everybody. Next, I'm going to talk to the candidate who actually gave birth in her campaign ad. It's the best campaign ad you've ever seen. It is. It is so, (laughs) I have so many questions for her. And how did she look so good in labor? So many questions. We'll be right back.
With the midterms looming, the campaigns are getting personal, really personal. A congressional candidate in Louisiana gives birth to a baby in her new campaign ad. My husband and daughter help take care of the chickens. And there's someone else who's going to be joining us and helping to pitch in with farm life very soon. But these days, I worry about storms that are stronger and more frequent because of climate change, about our kids underperforming public schools, and about Louisiana's new abortion ban, one of the strictest and most severe in the country. We should be putting pregnant women at ease, not putting their lives at risk. I haven't spent my career in Washington. I've worked my way up from bartender to CEO. Now, I help nurses organize our complicated health records. Because nurses aren't just heroes, they're saints. Louisiana deserves better than the path we're on. I'm Katie Darling, and I'm running for Congress because I want that better path. For you, for her, and for him. And Katie Darling joins us now. She's a Democratic candidate running for Congress in Louisiana. Katie, that's the most remarkable campaign ad I've ever seen. How did you do that? Um, Well, it was a pretty natural uh, process. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm really proud of it. But, But how did you get the idea or whose idea was it to say, you know what you should do? You should give birth in your campaign ad. Did you say that? Was it a campaign manager? How did that happen? Well, my pregnancy is what ultimately got me into the race. So as we were deciding how to introduce me as a candidate and how to share my story, it was a natural evolution of what was happening in my life. And so I did work with a couple talented folks to to put it together. Um, But it was just really organic what was happening in my life at the time. And the purpose uh, of my campaign was to, to share that story of being pregnant in Louisiana right now. I mean, it's so well done because it actually, you don't, You don't really know until the reveal at the end where you have your newborn in your arms that that's all real, that 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 was all actually happening. Who was taping this? Because nurses aren't just heroes. We had uh, two cinematographers from Louisiana that worked with us on capturing uh, that moment. I promise I'm going to get to the issue that you want to talk about in one minute, but how did you look so good in labor? Did I? I yes. It was all a blur um, in the moment. That's just um, how I look when I when <laughs> I was there. Birth. There was no uh, makeup, <laughs> no hair. That's just me. It's remarkable. And so, uh, so you know, Katie, tell us the larger point here. I mean, tell us what you know family planning means in Louisiana and what the abortion issue has done to your state. Well, I was seven months pregnant when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and there was a trigger abortion ban that went into effect immediately. And I became terrified of what could happen to me if I had a complication during my pregnancy and during my birth. I had a high-risk pregnancy, and my first instinct was to move out of state. But I recognized that not everybody can do that, and that is why I chose to get in this congressional race and to make sure that reproductive rights are available for all people in our country. 
So folks in Louisiana are currently um, dealing with this complicated abortion ban and legislation that's very confusing that is criminalizing women, pregnant people, and doctors. It's very problematic and is putting uh, people in harm's way. Well, I can't imagine a better way to get people's attention than to give birth on camera and to run for office uh, simultaneously. So, Katie Darling, thank you very much for uh, sharing your story with us and for letting us play that ad. Um, Really interesting to um, see that tactic and that you were able to pull it off. So thanks for your time tonight. And you have a newborn. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm no longer going to say I woke up like this. I'll say I gave birth like this. How did she right. do? She was in labor during that in campaign labor. ad. And she made it look wow. easier than I remember it being. Oh, I had C-sections. I don't know. I, I had epidural. <laughs> I was fine. But, I, but I, I look at these issues and say, it, it got your attention. Oh. And then it was, look, I was seven months pregnant, she said, when Roe v. Wade was overturned. We're talking about a lot of people now making decisions to run for office very close in time because the urgency they're feeling about. And the ad wars, by the way, that's one ad, but the ad wars are actually heating up as we get closer and closer to the midterms. But some of the ads may be more effective than others. We're going to look at those next. With our panelists who are standing by at the ready. So time is starting to run out for candidates in those very tight midterm races to really win over their voters. And the best way to do it, some find the campaign ads, but they're blasting them all over the airwaves. And some of them are personal. Some are a little bit cheeky. Some are pulling out the knives. Some are just giving birth. Some are giving birth. What it is, what's going to take to have voters really change their mind now? We're five weeks away. We're back now with John Berman, Alice Stewart, and Keith Boykin. Can we first talk about your interview? I'll never get over that <laughs> campaign ad. Uh, John, have you ever seen anything like I, it? Uh, You've well, studied history. We, we, we had twins, right? You know, I was, I was there when the twins were. So I have seen something like it. Did you turn it into an ad? <laughs> no, you did not. I turned it into years of therapy. Um, listen, I, because I'm 12 years old, all I could think about as that was happening was what if the director or the cinematographer said, you know what? I don't like that take. Yeah, let's, let's do that again. Let's do let's that do again. again. Yeah. Right there. incredible. Yes. So effective, I thought. Well, watching all of you watch it as well, we're all kind of like, oh, this is happening. It ha- that was really this happening. That's one thing she can say none of the male uh, politicians have done in a That's campaign right. ad. She, she can claim that. Yes. yes. So what makes an effective ad? Mm. Uh, clearly a personal story. That is a very personal story. And a, com- a compelling message. And certainly a, a message that connects with the people. You know, you can sit there and, and talk about numbers and polls and and stats and figures and dollars and cents, but it's a personal story that really is able to resonate with the people. And all at the end of the day, I've been on many presidential campaigns. You can have all of the check all the boxes of of all of the things that you need to do to run for office, but if you don't connect with the people, they're not going to support you. So your ads really need to really connect on a personal level. And let's just say she really did. Mission accomplished. But sometimes that connection, as we see, which, by the way, it's interesting that people can want to turn away or think it's too personal to have that birth on screen, but then decide people's personal decisions. 
in that same context in politics. But what's interesting about this is sometimes what the connection is, is they want to appeal to the visceral. They want to appeal to the stick it to the other person, that anger, that sort of sentiment. And, and anger can be an effective way to reach people in an ad, too. But I think, you know, the more effective ads are actually the ones that deal with some sort of sense of authenticity. I thought that was a very authentic ad, you know, just and just to show your personal experience and to relate to the story. That's it, It's a very political story, a national story, but to take it on a very local, granular level and talk about how it affects you. Very similarly, I think Raphael Warnock makes some amazing campaign ads. They're humorous, they're self-deprecating, but they're also focused on the issues, you know. Before we get to that, let me just play one for Ron DeSantis, because Mm -hmm. I think that he's doing what you're talking about, what you're all talking about, by using his wife. You know, obviously, some people would say that Ron DeSantis could use to be humanized on some level, and his wife um, hey, does. Is that a robot movie? Uh, like, is that a robot? <laughs> no, I, I, was, I was trying to ha- how to do the worm also? phrase yeah. that. Um, but his wife, I think, does that. So mm. here this is. If you want to know who Ron DeSantis really is, when I was diagnosed with cancer and I was facing the battle for my life, he was the dad who took care of my children when I couldn't. He was there to pick me off of the ground when I literally could not stand. He was there to fight for me when I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. That is who Ron DeSantis is. So also highly Ooh. personal. Can I say something about yeah, that? I mean, I, I feel this, it's a very emotional ad, and I don't want to say anything to, to disparage that experience. But at the same time, I find that ad incredibly problematic because what it does is it everything that she's saying is is counterintuitive to who Ron DeSantis is as a leader yes you can be kind and compassionate to your wife to your friends to your family but can you do it to the people of your state the people who are vulnerable the people who you're shipping out or actually going to another state and flying them to Massachusetts what kind of compassionate person is that so yeah I don't give a damn that you can just sit and, and help your family if you're not able to do that for the rest of the people in your community, in your state. That's your job as a leader. Yes, you're a good human being, yeah. perhaps, with your family, but be a good leader for your state, not just for your family. Well, That's me, cynical and hypocritical let me to just me. just say, if, if you've seen anything of Hurricane Ian, you have seen Ron DeSantis at his best appealing to the people, making sure their needs were met, making sure that they had the... the needs that met, meeting with uh, President Biden, getting the federal assistance, making sure they had housing and food and clothing and their needs. He was very compassionate and very aware. And in terms of the the immigrants that he sent elsewhere, he did that because he was overwhelmed. And the, and the state of Florida was there, overwhelmed. There immigrants in Texas. He didn't have to get... How was he overwhelmed by immigrants in Texas? He went to Texas and took immigrants from Texas okay, but, to but, Florida, to Massachusetts. Was that effective well, or... Mm, I, think you, I think you hit it on the head when you were introducing it, which is that if you read profiles, like there's a New Yorker profile of Ron DeSantis, that he has a problem connecting on a personal level with other people, including people who seem to be his friends. So this was an effort to humanize him. I mean, this is something the campaign clearly saw that was a need that needed to be filled. And this is how they chose to do it. It's a very emotional ad. It's a very memorable ad, to be sure, which is what you want. You want an ad to be memorable. You want an ad to get played on on TV for free like this. And you also want it to be shared. 
you know, on online and on Twitter and whatnot. So, you know, I think it worked in that sense. Yeah, agreed. I mean, very, very intimate. We've had two examples here of a very intimate family experience there in a campaign ad. So when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about Kanye West, his anti-Semitic tweets. I heard Keith Boykin just go, ugh. Yeah, you're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. Um, I would say oi. (laughs) And why his Twitter accounts are now locked, you can imagine. And we want to know what you think about it. So here is a tweet from Jenny, and it says... Kanye needs to go to the Holocaust Museum, followed by the Museum of African-American History. Then he needs to stop posting slash talking and just listen to people for a while. Well, send us your thoughts to at Allison Camerata or the Laura Coates. Kanye West showed up last week at his Paris fashion show wearing a T-shirt with White Lives Matter written in huge font on his back. And days later, he tweeted, and I'm quoting here, going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone who ever opposes your agenda, end quote. Kanye's Twitter account is now locked for the anti-Semitic tweet. Back with us to talk about this is John Berman, Alice Stewart, and Keith Boykin. So, John, um, Kanye has spoken about having mental illness. I mean, he has talked about having bipolar disorder. And he has said that in his manic mode, he becomes hyper-paranoid. And he has described himself as thinking that everything's a conspiracy. Are we supposed to take that into consideration when he says repugnant things like that? You can't have mental illness and be anti-Semitic. And I think you need to call that what it is, which is just pure anti-Semitism. It's anti-Semitism 101. I was on a panel once where a professor said, we shouldn't even call it anti-Semitism. We should just call it Jew-hating because anti-Semitism somehow desanitized it. That's classic Jew-hating, going back to conspiracies, the type of conspiracies that people have spun for centuries. You know, you people have undermined me for so long. You are controlling things and pulling strings. That's what it is. What's motivating it, to me, is less interesting and less important than acknowledging what he just did in public for everybody to see. And I know there's a debate about whether Twitter should deplatform him. I don't care what Twitter does. I care that he said this, that someone who is this high profile with this many people who are looking at him, felt it was okay to say something so blatant in front of the whole world. Whether he did it out loud or whether he did it on Twitter is not important to me. When when you hear people say things like this, you wonder, is it because they are uninformed about what happened with the Holocaust or are they just anti-Semitic? And I agree with the the person that uh, tweeted into the show. He needs to go to the Holocaust Museum and he needs to take a history lesson on what happened and the atrocities that happened to the Jewish people during that time period. And he also might want to go to the African-American History Museum and learn a little bit about that. Here's the thing that I find astonishing. In the last week, he has not only offended Jewish people, he clearly offended a lot of African-Americans when he went to Paris Fashion Show with the White Lives Matter sweatshirt. They were very frustrated. And here's a man who is a businessman who makes a lot of money off of his rap music and selling clothes 
And he's taking a huge financial hit by pissing off every single, you know, entity he possibly can. So you wonder, what is the motive? What is his end game other than certainly getting people to talk about him? But he's losing a lot of business. He's no longer on social media. And he's certainly not not really. He was on after part of this, not the anti-Semitic tweet, but he had an audience for about an hour of Tucker Carlson. Extraordinarily, I mean, high-rated show. Yeah. But What's you know, their I, love affair with him? I mean, I, I do struggle on this, and I want to say why I'm a little bit quiet here. I, I struggle with acknowledging a provocateur. I, I do, and it is extraordinarily important to continue to address what ought to be obvious, which is. I don't buy anyone who tells me they're not educated about the Holocaust or they're not educated about anti-Semitism, they're not educated about bigotry. I think people make a choice to be a bigot or not, and being bipolar does not make you a bigot. But the idea yeah. of addressing the provocateur feels... I'm always torn. Are you, do you feel that way, Keith? I, I feel exactly the same way, and I've been dreading this conversation all night because... I feel like this is exactly what Kanye wants. He wants us to be talking about him. And, and, and to a certain extent, even if it's bad news, it still gets him, it gets him the attention that he wants. Um, and Kanye West is that provocateur. He, he knows what he's doing is wrong. It doesn't matter if he has mental health issues or not. He knows that, that anti-Semitism is wrong. He knows that preaching anti-blackness is wrong. When he talks about white lives matter, he also said that slavery was a choice, mm. you know, Kanye West was the one, black people embraced him years ago because he talked about George Bush during Hurricane Katrina. But I, I wonder if he even believed that. I wonder if that was just a part of his stick again, a part of his effort to just sort of be the provocateur all the time. And Kanye West is, is somebody who, unfortunately, Alice, I think the Republican Party was starting to embrace just a week ago. They, they, they liked him a week ago until he went off the deep end again. Uh, they, they liked him ever since he like Trump and he, exactly. he went to White House to see Trump and you know the yeah. the, the fascination with him and giving him an hour and you know of television on another network I, I don't understand that but uh, clearly I don't feel as though someone with with such anti-Semitic anti you know African American views deserves the kind of attention that he's getting but clearly he's getting it. Well, we're going to see a lot more about who gets attention on the Twitter platform. I see there's a, maybe a new sheriff in town overseeing who's going to be back on and not. We'll see about that coming up. I want to hear from you all. It's time for you to sound off. I know you've got opinions out there. What is your take on the best response to Kanye West? Just direct your thoughts to at Allison Camerata or the Laura Codes, and we'll hear them in just a moment. And use the hashtag CNN Sound And really, you can tell us anything. It doesn't even have to just be about <laughs> Kanye. <laughs> Okay, it's time to hear your thoughts on tonight's topics, live and unscripted, <laughs> I'm told. All right, so what do we have across social? What could possibly... Here's, here's Pandora's box, everyone. No, it says, <laughs> I can't wait to get Republicans back in office to restore our economy and safety, period. I like it succinct. I like it right to the point. That's how you should tweet. Agree. Okay, what's next? Another one was, let's see here... Um, this response to Herschel Walker. Republicans are supporting Herschel Walker because he's easy to manipulate. That was, um, I think it's Alice, not the one at our table who said that. Then you've got also, um, so Herschel Walker has a scandal, lies about it, and raises campaign donations. Trump gets searched by the FBI, has stolen documents, seized, and gets millions in donations. This is the GOP business Okay, model. stop right there. Alice. That is the GOP business model at the moment because Trump showed them how to do that. The, the more scandal, the, then there's more money raised. Well, it, yes. 
whenever the FBI, every time there was a new development with, with Mar-a-Lago, my inbox would get filled with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten email fundraising solicitations from Trump because he portrayed himself as the victim and they were on a witch hunt and there was prosecutorial misconduct and going after him. And that's the way he perceived it. He was the victim and people bought into it and gave money. And off Herschel it. Walker's doing the same thing. And, and Herschel Walker's well, doing the same trying. thing. I, mean, we, I think we talked about this on another show that we may have been on together, Alice. My question is, is Donald Trump a unicorn here? Is Donald Trump the only one who can get away with what he did and get elected? I don't know the answer to that. I think we're going to learn. You know, can Herschel Walker pull off what Donald Trump pulled off after Access Hollywood, after um, Trump University, after everything? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Trump did it, but I just don't know. I don't know if others can do it, too. Well, yeah. what, we, what we saw with Trump, whenever there was the Access Hollywood or any of these other scandals that came up, he did same playbook. Uh, deny, deflect, and demean those that uh, accuse him of these things. Herschel Walker's doing the same thing. Except yeah. Donald Trump did it faster. Herschel Walker had right. a few days of incomprehensible conversations where he was sort of apologizing, but right. we didn't know to whom. Right. But Donald Trump just by default, I mean, by his nature, immediately yeah. deflects, denies. Defi- he was defiant. And that's why you're asking him to have more of a Trumpian response, talking about Herschel Walker. But the idea of trying to... Who gets away that the Teflon Don mm-hmm. phenomenon? Part of it, and Paul Begala was talking earlier today about his perception that people feel that Democrats are elitist. Part of that conversation is people not wanting to be told how to think or feel. I think there's a lot of reaction to the PC movement, although I, I don't know why there is a visceral hateful, hateful reaction to the, what's PC and right to say. But this idea of I don't want you to tell me who I think is a good candidate or not. I think that's as much part of the Herschel Walker conversation as anything else. I don't think it's just about people dictating who you should or should not like. It's about the hypocrisy of the party that calls itself the party of family values, the party of pro-life, the party of of protecting the, the traditional values. And then you have Herschel Walker as your candidate. And he's apparently, if the allegations are true, antithetical to all those different things. And he goes on and he says, well, I believe in redemption. Well, how can you have redemption if you haven't acknowledged you've done anything wrong? Right. And this goes back to what Mitch McConnell talked about, the question of candidate quality in many of these races. And look, we can go back to the primary. If we could redo the primaries, we might have different candidates at this point. But right now for Republicans, it's a binary choice between Herschel Walker and, you and, might and, still and, win. and, and the I mean, back. I know you're talking about yeah. candidate quality. You might still win. Right. And polls right now in Georgia have it tied at 45 apiece. Uh, Herschel's campaign is back in the field this week. We'll see how the numbers play out later on. But they're going to be full speed ahead. And top name Republicans are going to Georgia to to really show the binary choice between Herschel's policies and uh, and, and Warnock. We had another tweet, though, on the topic of Kanye West. And I want to leave this out in the conversation. It comes in and it says, um, and the question we posed using the hashtag CNN sound off was, what do you think the appropriate response ought to be to Kanye West? One person said, the man needs family intervention and they should be providing it. The alt-right media should stop using him as a tool. And the rest of us ought to give a confused and challenged man a break, but not a break to the shameless media that exploit him. Berman, do you think he deserves a break? I, I think that was like four-fifths right. I think the last part right there is the wrong thing. Sure, yes, the family should have an intervention. Yes, the alt-right media should stop deifying him. But, you know, you have to call this out, and there's no excuse for it. 
if there is mental illness there, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not going to diagnose it, then yes, he should get help. But that's not an excuse for saying hateful things. And when someone who is has the profile that Kanye West has says them, you need to acknowledge it. It's just dangerous not to, else it becomes ingrained in our society, else it becomes okay to then, say then, what he did. Then maybe the solution is actually to deplatform people like that. I mean, so he has something like 31 you know. million um, followers. So, you right. know, to your point, to, to, to stamp it out, you have to deplatform well, it if you have 31 million followers. We have two seconds. Just we talk so much big picture about what he's talking about. For him to say, when I wake up, I'm going death con three on Jewish people. The yes. funny thing is, I actually can't be anti-Semitic because black people are also Jew as well. This okay. is not acceptable. No, <laughs> I think on that note, That's we can all <laughs> agree. But before we go, we do want to say congratulations to Keith. He's got a new book out this week wow. called Quitting Why I Left My Job to Live a Life of Freedom. I got to read this one. I have to read it, too. Wow. You that look, is you look very relaxed. Oh, and it's you. a great cover photo. Oh, and that's not, that's, that's not quiet quitting. That's just quitting. Wow. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> you guys, thank you. Thanks so much for being with us on our inaugural show here. Great to have you guys. And thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.